The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their healthy kitchen oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning into today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In episode 206 of The Real Food Real, we are again joined by Katie Pettuccini from Holistic Endurance to debunk common MAF myths. You will learn what it means if your math pace has dropped since adopting an LCHF template, the difference between math training and race pace, whether calories burnt are important in relation to body compositional goals how the principles of math training apply to strength and power athletes, and so much more. Hi, Katie, and welcome back to the show. Hello, Steph. Thanks for having me. Let's dive straight into today's topic. It is one that we've explored before with Dr. Phil Maffetone, um, but it, it comes up quite a lot with um, you know our athletes and some of the myths that they're exposed to in the endurance training world world, but we get lots of questions um, for how it applies to other athletes, which I wanted to explore with you as part of today's discussion. But just before we get into that, could you give us a little bit of an overview of what MAF training is or what the formula looks like for someone that might be new to this conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So MAF stands for Maximal Aerobic Function. And It's been developed from Phil Maffetone's work and he certainly describes it more eloquently than myself in part one of this discussion. And what we're looking for with MAF training is working the aerobic system and what most people would be familiar with termed as zone two work if we're looking at zones from one to five. And it's that steady state of exercise where you can belly breathe, you can talk, it's quite relaxed, perceived efforts should be easy. Um, And it's where we develop aerobic endurance as well as muscular endurance. So for anyone training for endurance events, that's where we should be spending majority of our time. Now, the MAF um, heart rate and how that's derived with the Maffetone method is the 180 formula. 
And there's more detail on this, but the basic formula is uh, 180 beats minus your age. <clears throat> so if we use the round example of a 40-year-old, their maximal aerobic function heart rate would be 140 beats per minute. Um, what we find, and I guess why this concept was really derived from, is we, Phil and many of other professionals and myself, which is why I've utilised this method, have seen many fit and unhealthy athletes just with um, some metabolic issues or mood issues, energy issues, burnout, fatigue, overtraining, um, and depression, anxiety, unable to lose weight, and all of those lovely things. So that's where the benefits of, of math lie in combating those concerns. Yeah, awesome. I love it. You know, I was having a conversation online just yesterday with someone that's started doing all this endurance training. Like I think they've, you know, dived into maybe 20 hours a week and they're still carrying all this weight around the middle. And that's a classic example of, you know, you, you rock up to watch an Ironman and you'd expect everyone to be like the fittest of the fittest. But we do see so many people that um, are carrying too much weight, but not to mention what's going on sort of at a deeper level from a health point of view with some of those other conditions that we see so prevalent in the space. And obviously nutrition plays a huge role, but so does that, you know, harder, faster, more mentality that we often see that um, just puts someone in that anaerobic or that high intensity zone for the majority of their training which is the opposite to what we're trying to achieve with an MAF approach yeah definitely so if anyone's ears are, are um, perking up on the, the experience of more training but unable to lose body fat or even gaining body fat <clears throat> this is definitely a, a conversation for you and it's definitely not just about body composition uh, there's so many other benefits to it as well yeah a hundred percent just one example of what we see. So, yeah, let's progress a little bit. Um, firstly, I guess, talk to us about, you know, where you feel this really applies. So you mentioned definitely endurance athletes and we want the majority of our training to be at or under MAF heart rate in that aerobic zone. How can we use that information to talk to other athletes in different sports or that have a different focus to someone that's purely endurance? Yeah, let's um, draw on a couple of examples. So if we start with the, uh, say, team sports such as netball, football, that are still uh, rely on aerobic conditioning. <clears throat> Uh, sorry for the international listeners, netball, they won't be familiar with. Um, but let's go with basketball, for example. Is netball uh, a national sport? I didn't even know that. Well, <laughs> not uh, in the United States wouldn't be familiar with them, no. Yeah, <laughs> it, sorry, no. <laughs> yeah. UK, it's more prevalent and Australia, but not in the States. It's getting there, definitely. Uh, so team sports-wise, there's obviously a restriction. Like endurance athletes, it's an... Uh, individual sport you've got your own program you stick to your own heart rates or you should uh, and you go out and do your training in a team sport environment you don't have that structure it's more fluid depending on what's happening in the game as to how hard you would work uh, it's also dependent on what position you play in any given team or sport so using the math principles are a little bit more difficult or complex it's not straightforward but 
a, <clears throat> a footballer, a rugby player, a basketballer, a netballer all need a really good aerobic engine. So it still needs to be a priority. And how we could look at that and also being fat adapted would be a priority. So where I look at athletes in that situation is focusing in the off-season is really where that aerobic conditioning, aerobic endurance and the MAF principle needs to be adapted um, or adopted and then also putting nutritional principles in place at the same time for fat adaptation, allowing that foundation to be built prior to the season and then gain those benefits in because in-season training is going to be of a much higher intensity. There's less control over the intervals um, and we're going to have more frequency of, of that higher intensity as well. So, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to agree. I think that's a really good place to start thinking about if someone's purely in a team environment, it would be very tempting for them to take a lot of what they do in season and continue it when they're having a break, not thinking about that whole periodization angle, which we really need to implement to, you know, manage our energy system, but help with our recovery and our immune system and avoiding injuries and so on and so forth. So I love that off season idea. Yeah. And then if we look week to week, even in season, there might be three structured team training sessions and then outside of that, there might be uh, individual sessions that are either recovery-based or fitness-based. And that's where an individual playing a team sport can adopt the math method to get those benefits of being a fit and healthy athlete. Uh, and then within the team sessions, what I would implore coaches to do and then also in a team environment is making sure that athletes are warming up and cooling down at math or below and not getting caught up in that group mentality of um, pushing beyond their limits, which will not derive them the results that they're after. Yeah, again, I agree, which applies to everybody, you know, even just our seasoned um, athlete that wants to get back into running, you know, we've really got to think about that, yes, you know, it might be great to have a, a time-based goal, but that's that session has a time and a place, whereas you really want to be looking at how you warm up and cool down for every session um, and definitely making sure you've got some really good aerobic sessions. So do the numbers, work out your MAF heart rate and stick to that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And actually now I think of it, like in a team environment, a lot of them do have access to physiology, um, <laughs> physiology lab testing. Uh, so definitely utilize that if you want to enhance or you know specify that formula even further uh, based on your individual physiology. Yeah, for sure. I think the formula is so great to apply it to the majority, um, but depending on what level you're at and how data driven you are, getting some metabolic efficiency testing will really further specify when you move from that aerobic zone into the anaerobic zone and that will give you an adjusted MAF heart rate. Brilliant. So that's our team sports. Uh, Did you want to talk about short distance runners? Yeah, let's do it. What a great example. Because we talk a lot about triathletes and endurance runners, say uh, from 5K, 10K, 21 and marathon. Don't speak often about the training or the math approach for a 100-metre sprinter or a even an 800-metre sprinter. 
and blows my mind that 800 meters can be a sprint because I'm not a sprinter. Um, so all the power to them and their training and um, sport specificity would look very different to an endurance athlete, but they can still adopt math principles again off season to ensure they're uh, reducing that cortisol demand and load from recovering from the season that's gone by and building up their immunity for the season to come. Then they can also ensure that their warm-ups and cool-downs for any power threshold fart-leg-based sessions are at math or below. And then their recovery or aerobic sessions that follow on from any hard interval sessions are also strictly at math or below. Um, and the reality is that for, for an apps-based sport, they would naturally adopt a polarised model of training as it is. Um, it naturally falls that way because they're doing very short, sharp efforts with long recovery. So it's actually uh, a very wonderful way to adopt math if you've done under the guidance of a good coach. Yeah, so many benefits. And I think really important to talk about those specific examples so we can think a bit broader than just looking at endurance and thinking about being really intelligent with the way that we train as well because that's often forgotten about in many areas where, you know, definitely in team, which as you say, uh, a lot of the the mid-year training or the in-season training is all about the intervals and um, obviously sprinters are doing a lot of sprinting, you would think, but it's about the balance, of course. Mm, yeah, definitely working on that polarised model. Awesome. So I want to talk to you about a couple of, um, I guess, statements that our athletes make and, and break down some of the additional myths around MAF training. The first one that I think is quite relevant to someone that is a maybe looking at their training and nutrition and looking at an MAF approach, but also adopting a lower carbohydrate, healthy fat or LCHF diet. Um, so the statement is my speed at math has slowed since adopting an LCHF diet. And the question is, am I losing fitness? So what are your thoughts on that? The short answer is my belief is no. Um, mm-hmm. Just because a math pace is slowing, it's purely information. It's feedback. It's mm-hmm. like, okay, this is interesting. My body's under a higher physiological demand, therefore my heart rate is sitting higher for a given pace or my pace is sitting uh, slower for a given heart rate. <clears throat> it's purely feedback and information of where your body's at. And when you change your nutrition, your sleep, or there's a change in stress or environment, uh, your body needs to adapt and it needs time to do that. You don't recover from uh, sleepless nights. Um, let's say you had a, a week run of insomnia where your sleep was reduced um, by two hours each night from your usual habits. That's not necessarily, you're not going to recover from that necessarily from one good sleep. It can take a little bit of time. So similar with, similarly with annual nutrition, if you're coming from a, a day-to-day nutrition of high carbohydrates or even moderate carbohydrates that are quite refined and that's what your body and mind are used to fueling on 
And even if you are gradually changing that, there's going to be an adaptation period where your body's like, hold on, what's happening? And potentially have uh, a little bit of a reaction. So yes, your pace might slow temporarily during an adaptation period, but that doesn't mean that it's making you slower as a uh, conclusion. What we generally find is once that period of adaptation has been overcome and the athlete has transitioned through it and their body's got used to uh, the rebalancing of transitioning to a, a lower carbohydrate, higher healthy fats nutrition plan, is that then the pace rapidly comes back to improving. And it wouldn't be unusual to see someone's math improve dramatically over the space of one to two weeks when it hasn't improved for, say, four to six weeks. Um, And it's reiterating that message of patience uh, that we know this method works and we wouldn't recommend it if it didn't. Um, And it's just, yeah, a little bit of trust in the, the process. Yeah, and some patience, which is a hard skill for an athlete to learn. Um, but I like the way you break down the, the I guess, the adaptation phase because that gives our athletes a lot of context to sort of just bank the numbers but try not to read into it too much, you know, repeat the test four weeks later and keep working on the basics and all the foundations that we talk about on the show all the time because, you know, it's not one variable, right? But you're going to have to be really good at the basics and everything will move in the right direction. Yeah, and that's the other element. Like if math is slowing since adopting LCHF, it might it might, it might have happened too rapidly or there might have been too many other stresses going on in life, um, physiological stresses, psychological stresses that are impeding that ability to adapt and improve. So it's definitely not just about your running or your nutrition. It could be um, lack of recovery. There's lots of other elements. Yeah, 100%. Awesome. So next one or the next point um, for discussion is for us to just chat a little bit more about how we determine like a different heart rate. So yeah, we've got an MAF heart rate, but what about a marathon race pace? Are they different? And if so, how so? Yeah, very interesting. And it's, I've found it differs based on the skill level of um, that runner. So an experienced athlete, the answer is going to be different to a first time marathoner. We can adopt a rule of thumb, um, which has been shown with Phil's work, that a math um, or a marathon pace will sit 15 to 20 seconds per kilometre faster than your math pace as an approximate of, of your goal. Um, that's one way to do it, and then you can co- corroborate that with. Um, say, threshold testing as well, and that more comes down to a coach's end of doing that data analysis to see if those paces match up and and make sense from a formula standpoint. But if you are, you know, not working with your coach and just working off the formula and math, that's a really uh, nice and easy way to predict your marathon pace. So where I think athletes can get a little bit stuck is 
you know, in training, they're running a certain pace, which is quote unquote slower than what they will run on race day. And I'm here to reassure you that that is okay. We need to save our race pace for race day. There is absolutely value in doing race simulation based intervals and efforts in training that are balanced with um, under math based heart rate. Also, from to more the psychological side of it to understand what it feels like um, and get into that flow and not have that psychological barrier of, of what does it feel like to sit at this pace. Um, so, yeah, that's my, my short answer. I've seen there's the other scenario of how do we calculate marathon pace off the bike for triathletes, which is another um, good scenario because let's so what I've done in that case is if I was looking at a, a standalone marathon I would get um, the athlete to do a retest of their uh, math test over say six kilometers a week to two prior not in their peak when they're uber fatigued so as we're heading into taper to give us a predict a predictive pace um, and then we would say minus 15 to 20 seconds per kilometre and give them that, that range. Um, and this would obviously base, be based on training paces as well and be realistic based on how consistent the athlete has been over their build of 12 to 18 weeks. We don't just pluck numbers out of anywhere or one session for that matter. So if that's what we do for a standalone marathon, what I've done for Ironman athletes or even half Ironman as well is schedule a math test as a run off the bike from a key uh, long ride. So if that was an Ironman ride, you would do it after a six or so hour ride and then do a math test straight off the bike to help predict what your marathon pace will be for Ironman. Um, and that has definitely yielded some great results and um, given my athletes a, a lot more certainty, which I think super helpful. Awesome. Okay. So just for round numbers sake, if you're doing, you know, six minute Ks off the bike, then you would take your, what, your 15 to 20 seconds off that. So we're looking at 540 or 545 minute Ks. Correct. Yep. Cool. That's good. And definitely for pacing. Cause obviously when I work with an athlete, um, you know, I'm not talking about goal times for any other reason than, you know, nutrition, right? Cause we need to kind of have a good idea of exactly. how long they're going to be on the bike for how long they're going to be running for. So we can look at, you know, grams of carbohydrates or calories per hour. So that's really great information to think about because as you also know, people pluck these goal times out of thin air. It has like it just comes from I don't know the internet where you've really got to look at what you're capable of and doing some of these tests in those key sessions off the back of a key session, as you say, is going to give you a really good, accurate way to predict your swim bike run times and therefore line that up with your fueling strategy. So cool. Yeah, I've got it. I've just I've pulled up Training Peaks and got a real life example for us. Mm. So, had an athlete that was doing Ironman and their first one, and when they started their training build, their math run off the bike pace. Now it would have been a 
it's a bike ride of two to three hours, not six, so it is different. Um, we're sitting at 5.45 and then they've obviously built that fitness and in our taper week, uh, sorry, final peak week when they did a math test as a run off the bike off a six and a half hours, it was 5.05, so there's that beautiful improvement. Uh, and then we were able to set a goal time. Now, for a first-time Ironman, this is going to be much more variable than an experienced one. Yeah. Um, and I can give an example of that too, but this is great for a beginner. So they were 505 per kilometre and we set the goal pace as between a 515 and 540 and they ended up averaging 535. In the first 30K, they averaged 526, which we would expect that to drop off in the final 10K of anyone's first Ironman. So that was an amazing result using math throughout that whole build. And then a more experienced Ironmaner, um, their math run-off the bike pace was 4.30 and then their run-off the bike in race was 4.40 as a, a nice comparison. Oh, sorry. So we're adding, I was subtracting before when I went from six minute Ks to 5.45. In my mind, I was assuming oh, sorry. the I... pace would be a little bit quicker. That's okay. So we'll just readjust that example. If you do a, a six minute um, math test off the bike in training, then we'd expect to see you doing about a 6.15 marathon pace. Um so that's really interesting that you've seen that translate um, and get sorry yeah I forgot to um, spell that out with the the running off the bike example is different yes <clears throat> got it okay excellent but if it's a straight marathon we're looking at subtracting Faster. yep yeah yep, yep, beautiful yep. okay cool really cool all that's right that's been my experience mm. runs a little bit different. Yeah, it would be a good benchmark to start with and then look for the sort of individual nuances within that. Yeah, and that's where in field testing in training to measure threshold versus aerobic, so anaerobic threshold versus aerobic threshold or do lab testing just to cooperate those, those numbers. Cool, love it. All right, one of the other conversations that we often have, especially early days with someone fairly new to this approach is that they find that their math running pace is too slow. And the question is, can I speed it up? It's boring. <laughs> mm-hmm. Heard this a few times. Mm. <laughs> and I, I'm sure I've said these words, um, to be honest. And I get it. It, it can be challenging. Um, but at the same time, it's really interesting, and I know you covered this, it crosses over with that same myth you chatted to Phil about in terms of math just doesn't work for me. And I find that statement and, and this, one, this example also really interesting because if someone is saying that, then they're defying all laws of physiology, which is not possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the body works the way it works. There are thousands of textbooks and years of evidence to show us that. All math is is another way to formulate and conceptualise zone two training, which is being used across the board. Now, if someone is needing to slow down to stay in their zone two or their math, there's a reason for that. Unfortunately, it means that they don't have a great aerobic capacity yet. They're not fit enough yet or there's some stressors in their life, psychological or physiological, that are impeding their progress. 
Again, so if you are slower and you're bored, take it as feedback, um, as harsh as that feedback might be and you get a little bit disheartened from it. Where the trouble lies is when athletes kind of go, I'm just going to push it a little bit and I'm just going to play around with this idea and see if it works. You really need to go all in and trust the process to get the results. It's when we fluff around or faff around with the idea and kind of do math that you don't get the results and therefore we throw our hands up in the air and say, it doesn't work for me. You've really got to give it a proper crack because those comments of my, run, my math running pace is too slow will only be short-lived if you follow the principles of math and the whole picture of holistic health at the same time. It's only going to be a four-week, six-week, eight-week turnaround before you see those improvements if you go all in. Yeah, totally. And so many people are trying just to push the boundaries by a couple of beats, but you've got to look at what changes from a physiology angle that creates. So immediately you're going to be using more glycogen, which is, you know, we know more um, inflammatory due to the the way that um, carbohydrates burn in the body. It's more stressful on the adrenal system. The recovery time is greater. Like we've got to be smarter about what we're trying to achieve. I know. Wouldn't our worlds be so different if everyone was on board with that? Mm. And there's this... But I get the boring part. Mm. Go on. Um, I was going to say the other element to that is um, try and motivate, if you are feeling bored or you find it too slow, try and motivate yourself with a bit of a dangling carrot of, well, if I earn my stripes now what I will get to do in X week's time is this. And that means being able to throw in some threshold intervals or polarised efforts uh, because you have earned your stripes and, you know, rewired your metabolism and your aerobic function. So it's just that short-term, quote-unquote, pain, um, pain to your ego mostly uh, for that greater gain of your whole picture of health as well as your fitness at the same time. The other element that I found really beneficial when needing to develop math, and I've had to redevelop it many times, as have my athletes, whether I've had surgery or got sick like I am now and starting from from the start again, um, sometimes you don't have to just do it once, which is even harder um, because setbacks are part of life. Um, So ways to embrace that and enjoy it more and not hate the process I found is going to places that you enjoy running. So I enjoy the trails. I enjoy being near the ocean where I'm not getting caught up in who's passing me and how shit it is and how slow I am. And I'm just taking in my surroundings and genuinely just loving what I'm doing rather than focusing so much on how quote unquote slow I am. Give yourself something else or maybe uh, there's someone you know that isn't into running or wants to get into it and needs a kick up the butt and they might be a little bit slower than you, but it's a great reason for you to hold back and um, by you helping them is another great way to do it. Yeah, I love that idea. And as you say, short-term pain, long-term gain. Um, but time. speaking to that about math, you know, there will be times where you have to take a step back. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, there are some further clarifications that we might need to adjust it at a heart rate. That's so not always purely 180 minus your age. So, you know, make sure you familiarize yourself 
with those conditions so that if you, you know, do get unwell or injured or for whatever reason you're having to add in pharmaceutical intervention, that your heart rate is adjusted accordingly. And I'll pop more information on that in the show notes. Cool. Yeah. And, you know, similar note, there's no harm in walking. Like amazing fitness and endurance can be built from walking, um, building hill reps into walking, trail walking, hiking, weighted walks. I've done it time and time again for myself and athletes and seen it with great results. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Totally agree. All right, moving on. This is a slightly different angle, but definitely something that comes up in my world at least. So the questions are, will I burn fewer calories at the MAF heart rate than if I went higher? Will this get in the way of my body compositional goals? Mm. Look, it's a valid question and a good question. And where my mind goes to first is wanting to get an understanding of why someone is paying attention to calories Mm -hmm. and what is the purpose of understanding whether they are burning more or less. Uh, I'm not a big believer in the myth of calories in, calories out equals weight loss. The body is much more complex and magnificent than that and there are lots of um, other biochemical processes happening that enable ideal body composition to occur. I think putting it down to such a basic formula is um, simplifying the magnificence of what our body does. It doesn't consider the thyroid, it doesn't consider the adrenals or insulin or all these other things that factor into our um, our body composition, which is why we see many athletes training 15, 20 hours a week, not losing weight or putting it on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as simple as calories in, calories out. <clears throat> and that's even if they were eating well. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm with you. I think for me when that question comes up, it does give you a bit of a view as to what sort of where maybe that person's coming from in terms of their previous experience yes, and definitely how educated they are in a more sort of modern sense. I mean, nearly everyone's been exposed to the calorie fallacy over their life. You know, as you said, it's been very simplified. If you've got a body compositional goal, like so if you need to lose weight, then you eat less and you move more. And, you know, we've spoken about that a thousand times that it is just too simple when, it, when we look at the physiology, not to mention how we utilize different fuels. So, you know, with MAF, what I really want you guys to think about is if you stick to that heart rate, that's where you're burning fat for fuel, yeah? So the number, the overall number on your watch might say less in terms of total calories, but if you stick to math and under, that'll be a significant proportion of coming from fat. So that's how you take training and assist you to continue to become fat adapted. Yeah, I think there's definitely a, uh, a drive when people are like, oh, I feel flabby or I've put on a little bit of weight or um, I want to shed the quote-unquote winter kilos. It's this tendency to rush to a high-intensity workout or a hard run and really sweat your guts out and burn and feel the pain when the opposite is true. Uh, we need to go for power walks and you know easy runs and, and math-based heart rate workouts um, and some strength and conditioning thrown in there too. It's a good measure. 
Yeah, it does spin a lot of people's mind upside down because, again, for so long it's always been about intensity and harder and more and faster. So to hear that for the first time, it's a bit like hearing that, you know, saturated fat is cause heart disease for the first time. You know, people are really struggling to understand it when all they ever know is the opposite. Definitely. Actually, the, the strength and conditioning or lifting weights example is a good one because if you wore your watch for that, it would also show a lower calorie count. Mm-hmm. It doesn't factor into the lean muscle mass that you're gaining, which is then allowing you to burn more fat at rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a, a similar conversation and it doesn't, it, those, the simple calorie metrics from your watch aren't factoring in all these other things. And that's the other point is your watch won't always measure correctly like you've got to if you are basing your calorie count off a watch or a device you've got to make sure it's set up properly as well like we can't just use those numbers for bible yeah again so many factors and really counting your calories should be the least of your concerns (laughs) yeah let's simplify our life let's have one less stress please Awesome. So final question is from someone who has an event in three months' time. Is this enough to become fat adapted? Short and simple answer is yes. (laughs) If uh, very dependent on a couple of things. Number one, where they're coming from and are they, we're talking about someone that hasn't run before, you know, poor diet, etc. So it does depend on the foundation. Let's say um, it's someone that has 12 months' worth of exercise and, and running history, um, but they haven't adopted an LCHF lifestyle as yet. The answer would be yes if you stick to a math approach for that training build over the three months and if you adopt that LCHF lifestyle as well as uh, holistic lifestyle factors like breathing mindfulness meditation and not having a high level of environmental or psychological stress in your life yes it's totally possible um i also see that some people do just adapt better than others with no particular rhyme or reason and that might be because of uh long-term health history uh, that has set them up for that so um like long-term use of medication, uh, other chronic health conditions previously or gut health, you name it, lots of factors. But in short, yes, it's possible. Yeah, I agree. I think it's plenty of time. Knowing that it's not the end of the road, it's not. It's actually the kind of first phase of the journey, those, those initial 12 yeah. weeks. And, of course, you know, how much you achieve in those three months is going to be largely based on compliance to one, nutrition, two, training, three, the whole picture from that holistic point of view. Um, But I think it's also about managing your expectations. For a lot of people, this is then their first race that they're going into with totally different strategies. Mm. You know, it's a different um, race week. It's a different pre-event meal. It's a different pre-race breakfast. For some people, it's the first time they're doing a race fasted. It's a different fueling strategy. There's different logistics. Like there are a number of factors that I think you have to dive in and sort of rip the bandaid off to get that race day experience. But you should really be able to, I think, hopefully pick a B or a C race and use it as a race to test all of the above, you know, test the new strategies and, and get some really great feedback under those circumstances that you simply cannot replicate in training. So 
you know, I think if it's an A race that maybe that's not the best idea. I'm not saying you can't do it, but you'll be have to you'll have to manage your expectations more carefully and think like long term as well. You know that over the next couple of years, your metabolism is going to be completely evolving and you'll get really good at all of the new strategies that you are testing in those first three months and implementing in that next race. So at that point, I would say if someone is, let's say it is an A race in um, three months' time, I would just say it has to be done under the guidance of um, professionals, um, nutritionists slash personalised coaching program uh, mm-hmm. to guide them towards that um, will certainly set you up for, for more success. Yeah, absolutely. But all about managing expectations because, you know, I think that there are a lot of changes that people make. And I think for my, from my experience, the not, the not carb loading or the not having breakfast um, or not having a conventional carbohydrate-based breakfast before a race for a lot of people is really quite mm. challenging to get their head around. Like, there's a lot of nerves around that. I mean, I can still remember how I felt about that all those years ago. And, you know, that's going to change just how you feel going into race day until you get the first-hand experience that it's really possible. Yeah, and that's the answer. There's no other way than to try it for yourself. Um, your experience isn't dictated by anyone else and theirs isn't dictated by yours. So um, you've got to try it for yourself and, and see. But it does take, yeah, that trust and patience. Yeah, yeah, awesome. So cool. I've loved this conversation and I'm sure our listeners would have had a few light bulb moments about their own personal experience or what their goals might be uh, moving forward. So thanks so much for joining us. Can you let us know um, where we can find out more about you and I can pop those links in the show notes? Yeah, definitely. Uh, Number one place uh, is the website, holisticendurance.com.au. Lots of articles on the blog um, that are quite in-depth so you can get some extra reading. And there's also um, 10 links to podcast episodes that I've done on The Real Food Real with Steph and that full history uh, as well as other podcasts that you can dive into. Awesome. So great to chat. Thanks again for your time and we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Steph. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.